This podcast is brought to you by Play.ht. All content is generated by artificial intelligence. Listener discretion is advised. So Richard, what do you want to talk about? We could talk about anything from your childhood to Caltech, to your work on the Manhattan Project and the space program, or we could talk about the philosophy of science, or you can tell me a joke, anything you want. But I don't want to talk. I just want to walk and listen. You see, you're the interviewer. I want you to do the work. I want you to do the work. It's your job to get me to talk. I'm a very good interviewer. I can just walk and talk as long as you prod me a little bit. We'll tell each other stories. Instead of what do you want to talk about? You say, tell me more about this story or what was that all about? You know, you must be experienced. You're a professional talker. So here I am. I walk, you talk. That's how it ought to be. Well, all right. Let me try again. So you were born in Manhattan. You went to MIT and Caltech and you went to Princeton for a year. Then you went to UC Berkeley for two years. And then you joined the, the Los Alamos National Laboratory. And that's pretty much how you began your legacy as a scientist, a physicist, a legend, really. I was wondering if you could tell me about your childhood. We can start there. Just tell me a little bit about being a child in the 1920s in Manhattan. How was life like? Yes. I'm not sure anything was that important in my childhood. I think the most experience I had was with music. I started playing when I was very young, before I started school. And by the time I was a teenager, I could play reasonably well and had developed a fair musical sense. So it was a great, great experience for me. I had a wonderful time. I was in the school orchestra. You know, the school orchestras like to try to be good. That was very interesting to me to learn that you don't have to play everything just like it's printed. You can change if it's not good. You can improvise a little bit if something's lousy. I discovered in the school orchestra that there was a whole world of people who played music and they liked to talk and explain what they did. It was really great. This feeling that you're part of a world and there's communication within it. I was never popular with the girls the way I was when I learned to play the saxophone. I could get a girl very easily in high school by playing the saxophone at a party. So that was a much bigger contribution to the world than anything else I did in school. But it was all part of it, music and girls. That was one aspect of school life that was very worthwhile. So at one level, I learned a little bit about the general world. And at another level, I became professionally involved with music. And there's hardly anything I learned in school that compared with the general value of music. In elementary school, I didn't get much out of it except to learn to read, which was useful in many ways, but that was about the only advantage I got from it. In grammar school, high school, and college, the main point for me was music. You were always interested in science and mathematics. When did you develop that curiosity? When did it first ignite? Do you remember any particular events? Or was it just a continuous process? No, I think it was continuous. But I can tell you one thing. When I was five, my mother took me to the city of Washington to see the World's Fair. There were all kinds of exhibits, and one of them was by a company promoting safety. There were three jugs, and you had to figure out how to get the water from one jug to another without using your hands. They had all kinds of mechanisms you could use, pulleys, and you could push a rod in, and things like that. So I got the answer and won a prize, a pearl. I still remember that day. 
It was a very exciting experience for me. I thought it looked easy, but it was hard. And then when I finally got it, I had won. I got a prize. I felt good. Uh, I remember that day very well, though the details are somewhat vague. Yeah, that was quite early on. Are you still as passionate about that, about science, about mathematics, creativity, as you were and then, or has it simmered down into a more calm and measured activity? Or do you still have the same passion towards it as you did when you were five years old? I certainly have the same passion. I don't have as much time to devote to it. That's the only difference between then and now. I can still get an enormous amount of enjoyment by trying to figure out something new about physics, about computing, about mathematical things, whatever it is. Whenever I'm doing it, I'm enjoying it as much as I did when I was five years old. Yes, that's right. There are periods of time when maybe other things interfere, but it always comes right back. If you get good at any kind of work, no matter what it is, the process of doing the work is the important thing. It isn't so much the end result. What is fun about life is having a bunch of different things to do and having some selection power so you can choose at, well, what you want to do at the moment. It's having choices. It's freedom. You see, we're always making choices. And it's the making of the choices that makes the difference. It isn't working up to something or having a goal. The goal is nothing. I mean, you get a goal by making choices. And so the difference is in the choice. Maybe to you, it's making a scientific discovery. To me, it's just playing with things and enjoying finding out new things. I don't regard what I do as work. The word work is a loaded word. It means to me you're not having any fun, but you're just doing something you don't want to do in order to get some other result. I regard what I do as play. And all I want to do is play. And if it serves some purpose, that's fine. And it may turn out that if you play, you get some real good things out of it. Like I don't have any objective. Like I have to beat nature. You mentioned freedom. So you're saying that the choice that you have to make new discoveries, that it's the process of exploration and discovery that is the most important part of what we do. It's not the discovery itself. It's not the fact that we found it. I think it's just the thrill of the chase. That's what is fun. The actual finding out is not joyful. It's not a particular fun moment, strangely enough. It's fun in the thinking. In order to get to that stage, you have to have a lot of fun, and it's that process. That's the important thing, that we, in our lifetime, are free to try to answer the questions we want to try to answer and not to be afraid of the fact that the problems are difficult. That's the difference between man and other animals, the curiosity the fact that you have to make choices. So if it turns out that this choice isn't very good, it's no great tragedy. I mean, it may not turn out so well, but you don't have to live in misery because of that. It's only the fear of failure in making a choice. The fear of being wrong. That is terrible. That's great. That kind of leads me to another topic I'd like to touch on. This one is more specific to your personal life. So if you don't mind me asking, Richard, are you happy with where you ended up? You turned the world upside down, the physics world, the scientific community, education in general. You changed the way we all look at physics. But how about your own life? Are you happy, Richard? And were you happy with the choices that you've made and where you've ended up? All I can tell you is that I'm contented with the way things are. The fact that I haven't accomplished great things in certain directions that other people have doesn't affect my contentment. It doesn't affect my sense of what's right and what's wrong. It doesn't make me unhappy that I didn't do certain things, unhappy in the sense of depressed and blue, because I just feel very fortunate in both directions.
As far as your question is concerned, the way to judge it is to ask yourself whether you're enjoying your life. And if you are, it's fine. If it should turn out that you can travel in time and you see that you won't be able to live your life again because of something, and you find out ahead of time what you did with your life, you'd be surprised at what you've done. When you're living it, you don't have that kind of perspective. You see what you're working on at the moment, and maybe it seems very important that you get this problem cleared up. But later on, you realize that the thing you thought so much of wasn't such a big deal, while something else you considered more or less unimportant turns out to be much more important in the long run. It's always a question of what you're looking at, what your current interest is. But the fact is, if you have an overall view of where you're going, you're not worried about that. You're having fun all the way. So it doesn't make any difference what the destination is, just as long as you have a good time along the way. Wonderful. And if you were to give some advice to your younger self, some single simple piece of advice, what would it be? Something that you've learned along the way that if you could hold it up to your younger self, you'd say, or scream, this is important. What would that be? Stop talking all the time and let somebody else get a word in once in a while. No, I'm only kidding. I would not want to do that. One of my troubles when I was young was that I always wanted to be right. And it's such a powerful instinct in me that even today, I must make some effort not to be absolutely sure that I'm right when somebody else is talking. I'm better than I used to be, but I still have that tendency. And the trouble with that is that it stops you from learning because if you can't accept the thing when it turns out that you're wrong, you can't learn. I have a feeling that through the course of this interview, you're going to teach me a few things. One of the things that I've always wanted to know is the way that you think. How does your mind work? What are the thought processes that you go through? So I'm going to ask you a few questions that may not have simple, direct answers. Like what? Like how does your mind work? How does the mind of a genius work? Is that it? How could you ask such a question? I know you're going to tell me that I'm a genius. Not at all. I'm going to ask you some questions that I hope will allow me to understand from your perspective, how you approach the world, because I feel as though I'm very different from you. For example, when I look at a problem, I have to understand it. And then I have to have it clear in my head what I'm trying to do, how I'm approaching the problem before I can begin to even solve it. And I know that you, in some way, must approach the problem differently. So I'm going to try to learn a little bit about that. When you look at a problem, how do you approach it? Do you always know what the answer is going to be? Or is it something that unfolds as you go along? Do you approach it from a different perspective than I would? Like Einstein said about his discovery about the special theory about relativity, that it was like falling from a skyscraper. Do you know what the answer is going to be when you start reading the problem? I don't know what the answer is going to be, but I almost always have some feeling for what kind of answer it should be. And it's directed by this desire to remove ambiguity. That the answer should be unambiguous, should be clear, and not involve any vagueness or unclear things. As a matter of fact, that's one of my favorite words. Hey, I hate vagueness in anything. That's why I often don't like to listen to students' answers, because they talk vaguely. They don't say exactly what they mean. It's a defect, which goes back, I think, to complications in the English language from the fact that it developed from dialects rather than being invented. So you can say something like this. The fact that the Angles ate the Saxons is a historical problem. What do you mean by that? Are they still eating them or what did they do many years ago? And the answer to that is vague. So I like to get answers which are not vague. That's part of the pleasure of physics and of mathematics. 
it's really clear. The way it's presented is really clear and unambivalent and really obvious. And I get a special pleasure when I read an equation and immediately see that it's true. And that's just like poetry. It's beautiful. I mean, it's not beautiful as in pretty necessarily. It's beautiful as in elegant in the sense that there's just nothing superfluous about it. Things are there for a reason. It's not unnecessary. It's very efficient. And I think that is what mathematicians and physicists appreciate most, that which is the most elegant and simple, yet powerful, to explain nature. There's nothing else out there in physics that can describe this power as well as the standard model of particle physics. But again, I think that for the audience out there, for the listener, maybe you could explain what is the standard model of particle physics? Where did it come from? And how is it used to explain nature? Okay. Today, there are two kinds of physics, quantum mechanics and Newton's laws of motion. And the idea is that in an ordinary situation, both of these things hold. And the problems are when you have a combination of quantum mechanics and Newton's laws of motion. So the question arises, what happens when you get very close to the speed of light? It's a very interesting problem because ordinarily it's impossible for an ordinary object to be going near the speed of light. But in quantum mechanics, we have these particles which are always going at nearly the speed of light. So how do we handle this problem? The answer is as follows. In quantum mechanics, when things are going very fast, there are smearing effects in the trajectories. The trajectories are not definite. They smear out. You can't see exactly where the thing is going to be because of the uncertainty principle. So the answer is that as it gets closer to the speed of light, it's as though it smears out its mass. In other words, because you interpret mass and energy together in the equation of two, the energy gets more and more of the mass. And so when things are going very fast, they have a lot of energy, but their actual mass is not very much because the mass is the energy divided by the speed of light. So high-speed particles, when you look at them in quantum mechanics, their masses get heavier as they go faster and faster, yet in a practical way for everyday purposes. The mass of these particles is small and doesn't depend on speed at all. In other words, you can drive a car at 100 miles an hour or 10 miles an hour, and the mass is the same. So it's one of these funny quantum mechanical phenomena where things get heavier and heavier as they go faster and faster, but you never notice it in an everyday practical way. The next problem is then that if you push something hard, it accelerates to the speed of light. But in quantum mechanics, we say that you can't accelerate a particle to the speed of light. And so the question is how to treat that. The answer, again, is to smear out the mass so that it gets heavier and heavier as it gets closer and closer to the speed of light. And so the particles can never really get to the speed of light because they're too heavy when they get there. But it turns out, this is my own work because this was not known before, that in quantum mechanics, there are other smearing effects. In fact, everything is a smear in quantum mechanics, but there's one very special effect you would guess that one of them is that an object in motion would have a different mass from when it's at rest. But the other new effect comes from the fact that in quantum mechanics, if you spin something, for instance, in a circle, you give it a certain amount of momentum in one direction. Well, momentum is mass times velocity. If you're going around in a circle, you're not incorporated easing of velocity, yet there's a certain amount of momentum that you gain. That's a new smearing effect, which makes things go faster and faster as they go around and so it turns out that there are no particles in nature today, no matter how heavy, which can actually get up to the speed of light. They just get as close as they can, and then they get slower. And they cannot accelerate up to it either. 
an object with no mass at all, an apparently empty space, pure nothing, empty space, cannot accelerate up to the speed of light because it will always have a certain momentum and you cannot get pure nothing to have any momentum at all. So it's impossible. You hear the advertisements, life here on earth is a constant acceleration up to the speed of light. Baloney, not even a particle of light can get up to the speed of light. So the standard model essentially is a way for a bunch of particles that have different masses and act differently to still have a consistent behavior. That's right. I used to, the thing is so difficult. I used to draw pictures, seminar papers. I would draw pictures where I'd say, well, the electron has this much energy. It's got a hook on it because of rotation, velocity. The energy is this, the momentum is that. The neutrino has this much energy and it's going at this speed. The photon, no mass, but it has momentum from moving with the light and so on. And someday I thought to myself, who is going to look at these damn pictures? And I realized that in order to understand these particles, you need two very powerful tools. One is the fact that all of quantum mechanics is self-consistent at every level. It doesn't matter how many particles are involved. The rules are always the same. So if you develop some vague idea of what's going on, you always have to keep in mind that although a certain idea that you have may not look right, if it doesn't agree with the total theory, it is not right. So in order to understand these things, you need this abstract mathematical aspect, on the other hand, because you can get actual pictures. Like if you're a politician, maybe you can always convince yourself that the economy is going up and seems to be doing well. And then when it starts going down, you says, well, gee, it's going down, but we don't know exactly why yet. But we don't know exactly why yet. But with these particles, you have to have a clear idea because nature doesn't explain herself what's going on. So you have to be definite whether or not it can do this or that. But at the same time, you have to admit that it is really an approximation. It involves lots of levels of reality, and you have to keep in mind that the laws that you can state are fundamentally statistical laws. That is, that after all is said and done, we cannot predict accurately the path of a single electron through a single crystal, not even a single electron. Because as soon as you turn it on, it starts going all over the place. What you can predict is that if you turn a million electrons through a million crystals, then you can describe their average response. So that's the idea of the theory, that the behavior of systems is a reflection of the statistical laws that govern their internal parts. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's a, it's a statistical law that makes us look at something like the standard model known as ineffective theory. The fact that it describes a large number of particles and phenomena makes it useful, despite not being so fundamental, because we can take one example and say it predicts X, but in reality, it's unlikely. I mean, it's unlikely that it could ever be unified. That's right. It's unlikely, but it might be. That's the tragic part of physics today is that we don't know whether it can be put together. On the other hand, we do know a good deal about what the principles really are. And if you want long range predictions of how the world is going to go, you have to use the most successful theories. And for the most part today, that's quantum mechanics and the standard model. Yeah. So it's kind of like a, a religious faith in a sense. It has to be, you have to be, you have to be religious about this. You have to believe or else you can't go on because there are problems and we know that the standard model can't possibly be accurate, but we believe as scientists, as physicists, that we'll be able to find a theory to unite it and make it work better. And that's sort of a religion. I mean, there's nothing else to believe except maybe that the universe is fundamentally random and there's nothing to unite. Yeah. You see, I don't believe that. 
I don't believe that at all. I think the universe tries its darndest to be simple. And so it seems that the basic laws that we use for describing nature must be simple. Otherwise, it would be a mess. So for that reason alone, I don't accept the idea that nature is random. In addition to that, there are other arguments which show that it ain't so. For instance, there are lots of reasons to believe in a creator. There are arguments that by studying the creation, you can learn something about the creator. There are lots of arguments that maybe the world is such a crazy thing that only somebody divine could have made it, and so on. So I don't believe that the creator sits around trying to figure out how to make a universe that is strange. So he can have some fun watching us struggle with it. Yeah, well, we're here to enjoy the universe anyway. And if it's random, it's an amazing coincidence. And if it's not random, that's even more amazing. So in any case, it's a surprise. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It was great to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. Once again, thank you very much for your contributions to the field in physics, to our understanding of the world, and to the education of humanity. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Richard Feynman. Goodbye. My pleasure.